Good morning, I'm Nathan Boyette, pastor of Outreach and Mission here at EP Church. I'd love to welcome you to our worship service. Wherever you are joining, we are so happy that you are here with us. Today, we're going to be continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we're going to be looking at Mark 14, verse 32. So in your Bibles or in your electronic devices, go ahead and find that Gospel account. And as you look for Mark 14, I want to tell you about the context of our passage today before we read it. This is the last night before Jesus' death. Um, it's right after the Last Supper, which we heard a little bit about last Sunday. Jesus' Passover meal with his 12 disciples. And during that Passover meal, he predicted that one of his disciples would betray him. And Jesus had predicted his death three times over the Gospel of Mark up until now. He had told his disciples that he would be betrayed, suffer, and die. And now the hour is fast approaching. And in Mark 14, 32, we read about how Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray with his Father before his hour of suffering and death occurs. Let's read together in Mark 14, 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us to encourage us, and we need your encouragement during these difficult times. I know that I personally long to be together again with your people, and even though we are, I'm preaching now to a relatively empty room, I pray, Lord, that you would use this sermon to encourage and bless people wherever they might be. We thank you for your word, that it can encourage, challenge, and comfort us wherever we might be. So we pray that you would use this in people's lives right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Bertrand Russell was a British philosopher during the early 20th century. He was an agnostic, and he wrote a famous essay called Why I Am Not a Christian. And in it, he lists all the reasons why he is not a Christian. And in it, he talks about Christ and Christ's moral character. And he writes these words. There is one very serious defect, to my mind, in Christ's moral character and that is that he believed in hell. I do not myself feel that any person who is really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. Christ, certainly as depicted in the Gospels, did believe in everlasting punishment, and one finds a vindictive fury against those people who would not listen to his preaching. Some people cannot believe in God or Jesus because they cannot accept that God would send people to hell. They think that a good, loving God would never do something like that, 
And in fact, they view somebody who would do something like that as evil. And it is true that Jesus taught a lot in the Bible about hell and judgment and on sin. In fact, he may have taught the most about that more than anybody else in the Bible. But in our passage, in Mark 14, 32 to 42, we see the depths of God's compassion as Jesus struggles in prayer before he goes to the cross and suffers and dies so that people don't have to go to hell. Mark 14 has an intermingling of betrayal and foreshadowing of the ultimate reason of Jesus' sacrificial death. Earlier in Mark 14, the chief priests and the scribes plotted how to secretly arrest Jesus and have him killed. And all of these events should come as no surprise to us because throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus had been telling his disciples that he would be betrayed, suffer, and die. Three times he told them in Mark 8, 9, and 10. In Mark 14, Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples. And in that meal, he points to the new covenant sacrifice of his body and blood. During that Passover meal, Jesus predicted that he, the Son of Man, would be betrayed by one of his 12 disciples. Furthermore, he told them that all that he, the shepherd, would be struck and that they would all scatter. And all the disciples swore that that would never happen. And Peter said, most emphatically, that even if everybody else fell away, he would not. The very ones whom Jesus had walked with for three years would betray him to varying degrees. The sheep for whom our good shepherd came to lay down his life would abandon him. But this was Jesus' mission. If we recall Mark 10, 45, Jesus stated, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom to bring many people back to the Father. So in our passage in verse 32, we see that after the Last Supper, Jesus and the disciples go to the Mount of Olives to a garden called Gethsemane, where Jesus would often go and pray. And he told his disciples that he was going to pray, and then he took his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, a little bit further away to pray together. And in verse 33 to 35, we read something shocking. We read of Jesus' immense distress, his emotional anguish, over what is about to happen. Let's read it together again. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. In this passage, Mark uses four different words to describe Jesus's emotional anguish. He says he's deeply distressed, he's troubled, he's overwhelmed with sorrow, and that he's distressed to the point of death. This last phrase could possibly mean that the sorrow feels as if he is dying. Mark does not often unnecessarily use words. He wants to emphasize that Jesus is intensely distressed and in anguish about his impending suffering and death. But as we think about that, we must question why. Why is Jesus so distressed the night before his death? After all, he's the second person of the Trinity. He's God the Son. He and the Father made the plan for him to come and save humanity by dying in our places. Throughout the gospel accounts, many times, Jesus emphasized his mission. Mark 10, 45, he says he came to give his life as a ransom for many. John 3, he talks about how as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the desert, the Son of Man will also be lifted up. In John 10, he talks about how 
he is the good shepherd and he will lay down his life for the sheep. This was Jesus' mission and plan all along. So why is he so greatly distressed as suffering and death approach? Today, we will explore that question through two main points. And through this passage, there are two counter complementary stories going on. We see Jesus in his humble willingness to go to the cross. And we see the disciples, a transformative betrayal as they fall asleep while Jesus agonizes in prayer. First, a humble willingness. As Jesus is greatly distressed and troubled, he feels an intense need to go to the Father in prayer. As Jesus prays to his Father in verse 35 to 36, we can gain some insights into why his approaching suffering and death are so agonizing for him. In verse 35, we see that Jesus goes a little ways away from the disciples and he falls to the ground. He's so overcome. In the parallel account in Luke, it talks about how Jesus was sweating drops of blood. In verse 35, Jesus prays to the Father that the hour might pass from here. The hour refers to Jesus' betrayal, death, and resurrection. In verse 36, we read that Jesus prays, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus prays in an intimate fashion to the Father. He calls him Abba, Father. But he also acknowledges the Lord's power and control. The Jewish people would never think of praying to the Lord of the universe as a father. He was the king, distant and powerful, their God. But Jesus prays in an intimate relationship with the Father. But he asked that the Father would remove this cup from him. The cup here is a common biblical metaphor. The cup referred to here is not the cup of feasting and salvation that the psalmists would often praise. No, it's the cup of God's wrath that the Old Testament talked about. The cup of judgment on sin. Isaiah 51 talks about this. It says, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. In Psalm 11, the author writes, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. These are just two examples of Old Testament passages that talk about the cup of God's wrath. Pastor Kent Hughes, writing about this passage, says that the cup Jesus asks to have removed from him is a cup full of sin and a cup full of God's wrath. The cup which Jesus accepted was one of sin because he took on the sins of the world when he was nailed to the cross. The cup which Jesus talks about is the cup of God's wrath because God poured out his wrath uh, towards sin on Jesus when he died on the cross. The death that Jesus was approaching as he prayed in Gethsemane was unlike any death that anyone has ever experienced. He fully bore the wrath and judgment that each person who has believed in him deserved. And he was innocent. Jesus was truly God and truly man. Of course, he was on a mission from the Father. And of course, as the second person of the Trinity, he knew this before he even became human. And he willingly took on that mission to save humanity He willingly went to his death in submission to the Father. But 
Jesus was also fully man. As a man, he had a human will. How could he not shrink from the cup of God's wrath that he would have to drink on the cross? That wrath would cut him completely off from the Father's presence. The Father is the source of all life, all goodness. And Jesus had enjoyed an intimate relationship with the Father from all eternity. How could he not shrink from the prospect of being cut off from that and having the wrath for sin poured out upon himself? Yet though he longed for escape from that fearsome suffering and the alienation that he would experience, he did not give in. He humbly submitted himself to the Father's will. We read in verse 36, yet not what I will, but what you will. After praying to the Father, Jesus returns to the disciples and he finds them sleeping in verse 37. And Jesus goes back and prays again. And it happens again three times. Jesus finds the disciples praying and Jesus returns to pray and push in to his submission to the Father. Though Jesus tremblingly entered into Gethsemane, fearful and terrified of what awaited him, he strengthened himself through prayer to humbly submit to the Father's will. Jesus' will to obey the Father was greater than his will to serve himself. And we see in verse 41 to 42 that after the final time of prayer, he comes and he declares to the disciples, it is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus has submitted himself fully to the Father's will, where in the beginning of the time of prayer, he asked that the hour would go away from him. Here he says, the hour has come. Let us go and face it. Jesus has submitted himself humbly and fully to the Father's will, ready to drink the cup of sin and God's wrath so that we might have life. He entered the garden fearful and distressed, and he exited it after having strengthened himself through prayer with the Father. So why did Jesus have such great distress in Gethsemane? Jesus was the second person of the Trinity. From eternity, he had experienced the intimate, life-giving relationship that he had with the Father and the Holy Spirit. As Jesus approached his suffering and death, he looked at the cup of sin and wrath that he would drink. And drinking this cup would necessitate separation from that intimate communion. He would experience hell so that we would not have to. He would be separated from that intimate, eternal relationship with the Trinity so that we might be restored to that relationship. If we struggle with Jesus' horrified astonishment in the garden at the fact that he asked for the cup to be removed from him, it's not because Jesus has a problem. It's because we have a problem with our understanding of how deep and horrific our own sin is. And we have a problem with understanding what was necessary for God to rectify that sin, what Jesus had to go through. So Jesus willingly suffered spiritual and physical death so that we might be reconciled to the Father. The name Gethsemane means oil press, and scholars believe that Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed, was an olive orchard as well as having an oil press where on a large stone platform, the olives would be rolled out, and then a large millstone would be rolled in a circle, pressing the olives And as it rolled over them for over almost an hour, the oil would flow out of the olives into a container. And as the millstone rolled over the olives, they would be crushed into such a a pulp that they didn't even look like olives anymore. 
This first pressing of the oil was the most valuable oil, and it was used for holy anointings, for lamps, and for perfume. Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane is not unlike the pressing of olives. Jesus went through a great crushing experience as the weight of his impending suffering and death, the weight of the wrath that would be poured out on him, fast approached. But Jesus bore up under that crushing weight by being strengthened in prayer. He bore up under it by strengthening himself in the intimate communion he had with the Father. The reality is that no illustration is going to help us adequately understand what God the Father went through, or what Jesus the Son went through as he contemplated suffering on the cross. Eckhart Schnabel, writing on Gethsemane, says, Jesus' prayer to be spared death conveys the excruciating anguish that senses the terrible reality of suffering the judgment of God, dying as a ransom for Midi, shedding his blood to seal the new covenant, dying as a sin offering, becoming the place of God's atoning presence, and becoming a curse for us. Jesus' anguish shows how deep our sin is, but also how amazing God's solution is. So Jesus willingly submitted himself to the suffering and death to restore us to a right relationship with the Father. And now, all we, only ha- all we have to do is respond in repentance and faith. We should acknowledge and recognize our sin and our shame. We need to do this so that we can truly confess and repent and then receive the forgiveness of the Father that leads to transformation. One application is this le- in this lesson from Jesus in Gethsemane is for us to reflect on our sin. Do we truly recognize how horrific it is? I do not encourage us to dwell on sin so that we can feel ashamed or burdened or beat ourselves up. No, I encourage us to reflect on it so that we can truly understand how bad it is, so that we can reject it and turn away from it and turn to the holiness God wants us to pursue and that we can pursue in Jesus Christ. As we repent and trust, we receive a relationship with the Father through Jesus. We are restored to the intimate relationship that we were created for, a relationship with the Trinity. Jesus, our high priest, can understand the pain and the suffering that we go through. Jesus, our high priest, also experienced the pain and suffering of living in this fallen, broken world. And so we can go to him. We don't have a high priest who is unfamiliar with the struggles that we have. But the Garden of Gethsemane is not merely Jesus' story. It is also a story of the three disciples, Peter, James, and John. These three were the most intimate followers of Jesus. These three were constantly with him. Only they witnessed the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. Only they witnessed Jesus' transfiguration. Now, as we saw in last week's sermon, Jesus' betrayal began during his last supper with his disciples. But his betrayal was also deepened as he goes to the Father in prayer and his followers fall asleep. In verse 33, we see that Peter, James, and John go with Jesus to pray with him while the other disciples wait at a distance. All three of these disciples had earlier boasted of their courage. Peter had mere hours before at the Last Supper stated that even though they all fall away, I will, fall, I will not, Jesus, I will follow you to the end. Earlier on the way to Jerusalem, James and John had confidently stated that they could drink the cup Jesus would drink, that they could be baptized with the baptism Jesus would be baptized with. But all three of these men cannot even remain awake a few hours as their friend, their rabbi, their teacher, 
agonizes in prayer a few feet away. Jesus tells his disciples in our passage to remain here and watch in verse 34. After he finds them sleeping in verse 37, Jesus questions, could you not watch for one hour? And in verse 38, he encourages them to watch and pray. This word for watch is essentially the same word Jesus used a couple chapters earlier in Mark 13, when he encouraged them six times to watch in the coming days. How striking that merely days after Jesus commanded them to keep and watch, they are sleeping when he asked them to watch and pray. In answer to the question in Mark 13 of when the destruction of the temple is going to happen, Jesus' main encouragement was for them to stay awake and keep watch of themselves. And here we see that the main way they should do that is through prayer. We see the depths of their failure when Jesus calls Peter Simon. In verse 37, we see, he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? This is the only time in Mark that Jesus calls Peter Simon, since he was named Peter in Mark 3. Peter's not acting in light of the rock on which Jesus said he would build the church, and that rock was the confession that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. Mark was written from a personal recollection of the Apostle Peter. Is it any wonder that Peter emphasized to Mark the Lord's use of his old name in this shameful episode? Can you imagine the shame and sense of failure that Peter, James, and John would have felt? How they would have fought back bitter tears to how their close friend and teacher had needed them in his desperate hour, but they had slept. They had betrayed him in his time of need. However, Jesus does not allow them to remain in that shame, but he calls them out of it. Harrison, Pastor Harrison spoke about this last week when he referenced the account in John where Jesus, after his resurrection, tells Peter three times to feed his sheep and restores him after his denial. Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane left an indelible mark, an unforgettable mark on the disciples and the early church. They would not forget the Savior fervently praying right before he suffered and died his atoning, saving, life-giving death. 1 Peter 5, written by the Apostle Peter years after this, reflects on it. In 1 Peter 5, 6, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Peter encourages his writers uh, with reflections that he may have learned in the Garden of Gethsemane. He told them, humble yourselves. Jesus humbled himself by submitting to the Father's will. He tells them to cast their anxieties on the mighty God. Jesus casted his anxieties on God the Father when he said, remove this cup from me, but your will be done. Peter encourages them to be watchful. Jesus told him to be watchful and he did not listen. And so Peter encourages his readers to learn the lesson that he did not in the Garden of Gethsemane, to be watchful in prayer. In Hebrews 5, the author of Hebrews reflects on the Garden of Gethsemane when he writes, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. 
The author of Hebrews, reflecting on the Garden of Gethsemane, encourages his readers to learn from that lesson that Jesus gave us. Not because Jesus was with sin or imperfect, but because Jesus modeled for us perfect obedience to the Father by crying out to him in prayer in times of need. Jesus invited this inner circle of the three to the garden, not because he needed the company. What Jesus needed was to be with the Father. No, he invited them to the garden because they needed to learn an important lesson if they were to follow and serve Jesus in the coming days. They needed to learn the lesson of humble submission to the Father. They needed to learn the lesson of reliant prayer on the Father in times of suffering and difficulty. And they learned that lesson. James was one of the first martyrs. Peter passionately followed the Lord and was martyred in Rome. John lived to a healthy old age, passionately following Jesus all of his days, but he died in exile on an island for his faith. Jesus willingly suffered spiritual and physical death so that we might be reconciled to the Father. And as the disciple story shows, this reconciliation leads to transformation. The sin and the shame, the betrayal that we have enacted against our Lord is transformed as he calls us out of our sin, reconciles us to the Father, and restores us and transforms us for mission. The reality is that Jesus came to reconcile everybody to the Father, to redeem us from slavery to sin, and then transform us into a people who passionately follow him in our lives. An example of this transformation is in the life of Louis Zamperini, whose life was made into the film Unbroken. Zamperini was an Air Force pilot during World War II. Uh, His plane was shot down over the Pacific Ocean, and he and two other crewmen survived for 47 days on a small life raft, only to be caught by Japanese uh, and made prisoners of war. Um, During their captivity, they were severely mistreated. They were beaten and tortured regularly. One of his tormentors, who was nicknamed the Bird, would become one of the 40 most wanted war criminals. After the war ended in 1945, he returned to America as a hero. He got married, but the horrific experience followed him. He began to drink heavily to try to forget all that he had experienced. He had nightmares of strangling the the prison guards. And one night he woke up strangling his pregnant wife. A few years later, still struggling with all that he had experienced, he went to a Billy Graham crusade at the encouragement of his wife, and he heard about the love and forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. Zamperini believed in Jesus, and his heart was transformed. He eventually was able to return to Japan in the 1950s, and he met many of the former prison guards, now prisoners themselves, who had beaten and tortured him. He was able to speak to them, and he asked if any of them recognized him. And when those gentlemen stepped forward, he went before them, and he embraced them, and he told them that he forgave them because of God's love and forgiveness. Zamperini did not let hate consume and transform his heart. Rather, he was transformed by having met Jesus Christ and the transformative love that God the Father can give to us. As we have faith in Jesus, we are restored to a right relationship with the Father, and that relationship leads to transformation, and it leads to mission. What does that look like? 
It looks like a life of active prayer. How do we bring our pain, suffering, shame, and sin to God for healing and transformation? We bring it to him by prayer. Jesus, in this passage, calls us to a life of prayer. Prayer was the means by which Jesus humbled himself and submitted himself to the Father's will. It was the means by which Jesus strengthened himself in order to follow the Father, even into the most difficult of places, drinking the cup of God's wrath. Prayer is the means by which we can humble ourselves and submit ourselves to God the Father and follow his will. When we go to the Father in prayer, we need to honestly tell him what is in our heart. Jesus was honest. He asked, remove this cup from me. But then we also need to pray that God would strengthen us to do his will. Jesus prayed, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will. Your will be done. Jesus' request was not answered. The cup was not removed from him. But the request that God's will be done was answered. I know that for me personally, these days are extra difficult and extra stressful. As things going on in the life of our church, as things going on in our nation, in our world with the coronavirus, as my kids are at home and struggling with homeschool because they cannot go to their normal school, my heart is stirred up and the sin that is still part of my heart and my life is rearing its ugly head. What should I do when circumstances expose the sin that is in my heart? Should I make excuses? Should I just say, oh, it's just because it's a difficult time? No. I should follow Jesus' example. I need to press into prayer. I need to tell God what is going on in my life and ask that his will be done, not my own. Jesus has restored us, each one of us, to a relationship with the Father, and that is a relationship of prayer, intimate communion with the Father that will lead to transformation. Each one of us during these stressful, difficult times needs to go to him in prayer. Just as Jesus restored the disciples after their shameful betrayal and failure, Jesus has redeemed and restored each one of us. He has done it for a purpose. He has invited us into mission. He wants us to go out to those around us. God so often uses the pain and suffering, the sin that we've experienced. He uses those things. He transforms and heals us from them so that we might then go to others who experience similar pain, similar sin, similar struggles, and might comfort them and encourage them. Our past pain and sin is not a weakness. It's actually a strength because God wants to use it to transform us, to comfort others who are struggling with the same thing. This is what Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 1 when he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted. Paul encourages us that we should go to others who are struggling and difficult and comfort them because we have been comforted ourselves. So there is so much suffering going on around us, physical, mental suffering. There's people who have suffered from abuse and addiction. There's people who are suffering because of economic difficulties. There are people who are suffering in our lives that we can go to and comfort if we've experienced similar things. Our church has a number of ministries. We are so delighted that Alcoholic Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous is able to meet in our church because it's helping people who have experienced suffering and difficulty in life. We have two 
uh, ministries in our church, grief share and divorce care, which focus on comforting people who have had difficulties. But each one of us who are called into God's mission should be going out to encourage one another, to encourage those around us that the sin and shame and pain and suffering they've experienced is not the end of the story, but that God wants to call them into relationship and heal and transform them. So in conclusion, on the last night before his intense suffering and death, Jesus approached the cup of wrath that he had set out to drink. And when he saw that horrific cup, he didn't shrink back. He went to the Father in prayer. He prayed that the cup might be removed, but that's because he saw how horrific it was. As Burton Russell, the philosopher, mentioned, Jesus spoke of hell, but he spoke of it because he did not want anyone to perish. He came that he might save us from hell. He came to give us life. And Jesus knew what he spoke of because he experienced that separation from God, the wrath of the Father on sin. Each one of us deserved that, but we have been saved from it if we believe in Jesus Christ. We've been restored to a right relationship, a relationship that leads to transformation from our sin. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you have given us peace in Christ. We who were far off have been brought near and restored to a right relationship with you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you drank the cup of wrath so that it is now empty. We who deserve to be punished, we who deserve to be eternally separated, have been been made sons and daughters and might be restored to a right relationship with you. We thank you so much that we no longer have to live in shame because of our betrayal and sin, but we can lift up our heads because we have been restored and we have a right relationship with the Father because of you. And we thank you that if we repent and have faith in you, you will transform us through the Holy Spirit. And we know that you desire an intimate relationship with us, Father God, and you call us into a life of prayer where we bring our needs, struggles to you and submit ourselves to your will. We pray that we might do that in our lives during these stressful, difficult times. We pray this all in our Lord Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.